0: Hello and welcome to the New Line's podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Powell, the CEO of the charity Intermediate, which focuses on the most difficult, complex and dangerous conflicts around the world. Jonathan served for 10 years as former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's Chief of Staff and Chief Negotiator in Northern Ireland and he's the author of Talking to Terrorists, How to End Armed Conflicts. Donovan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I suppose the place to start is Afghanistan. The idea of talking to the Taliban might at one point have seemed distasteful, but I think it's fair to say that now most people sort of grudgingly accept the necessity of having some sort of dialogue. But you would have talked to the Taliban much earlier, wouldn't you?
1: I would i said when i left government in 2007 that on my basis of my experience in northern ireland with the ira we should be talking to the taliban indeed to uh, hamas and to al-qaeda i said uh, and not surprisingly my former colleagues in government uh, rubbished me and said no 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 it's okay to talk to the plo and the ira but we shouldn't talk to these new groups hmm. uh, and i actually argued uh, with the people in government both in the us and uk in 2007 2008 we should uh start talking to taliban there was a concrete opportunity to do so but we missed that opportunity and we missed a series of opportunities i think probably the worst opportunity we missed was when i was still in government in 2001 to 2004 Hmm. and at that stage the um uh, taliban after they'd been defeated did reach out to president karzai and say they wanted to go back to their villages they wanted to be included in the new afghanistan but the americans told him to say no we're going to persecute you we're going to come after you and of course, they went over the border into Pakistan and and launched the um, jihad that led to the circumstances we have now. So we've missed a series of opportunities on talking to the Taliban, and it's a mistake. Did you find much of a hearing inside Blair's government for talking to the Taliban at that point? Oh, I was not arguing in 2001, I was ashamed to say. I wish I had been. But no, like everyone else, I thought, oh, we've won. Let's just form a nice democratic Afghanistan. But what I think I've learned in the past 20 years is that unless you get an inclusive agreement... Unless you have everyone with a stake, not just the people you like, it's unlikely to be a lasting peace, just as Versailles was not a lasting peace because we, it was victor's justice. And I, I fear the Taliban may be just about to make the same mistake all over again by having an exclusive agreement just for them as the victors and leaving mm-hmm. out everyone else, leaving out the ethnic groups, the other religious groups like the Hazara, leaving out women, leaving out the people who dwell in cities. So I hope they don't make the same mistake that we made, um, but it looks as if they may. So you wouldn't have spoken to the Taliban
0: in two thousand and one. You wouldn't have said, "Give up Bin Laden and we'll leave you alone."
1: Oh, well, the, the Western governments did say that. In fact, it was Tony Blair who originally proposed that to George Bush to put an ultimatum to uh, the Taliban to say, "Give up Al Qaeda and we'll leave you alone." Uh, but they said no; they would, they weren't going to do that. Um, and is, and that is it your, sorry, is it your belief that that was a sincere ultimatum? It was a sincere offer. Yes, they would not. Americans would not have gone in had that happened. But I think it wasn't a lot of chance that it would happen. Some Pakistanis argue nowadays if they'd been given more time, uh, uh, maybe something would have happened. But I don't know as much evidence of that. Do you really think that
0: at the end of 2001, having suffered the the attacks of 9-11, that the Americans would have said, "Okay, fine, we'll take bin Laden and that's the end of it? I mean, you've seen the quote from Henry Kissinger that he said that we have to humiliate people in order for them to understand that they couldn't have this sort of attack on us.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't the Taliban that launched the attack. So there'd be no point in humiliating the Taliban. That that was actually, in retrospect, why it was a mistake to go after the Taliban rather than just go after al-Qaeda. Had it been possible to do so, I think even then, uh, President Bush would have decided to just go after al-Qaeda.
0: So there would have been just a few airstrikes on al-Qaeda, sort of what bin Laden, sort of what um, bill clinton did in the late 1990s and then that No, no i don't think he would
1: have been pounding sand as bush called well i remember when tony blair called uh, bush the day after 9 11 because we couldn't get him on the day itself mm-hmm. and said so he didn't want to pound sand in the way that um uh president clinton had who just loosed off a few tomahawks against uh empty training camps in afghanistan he wanted to do something more long-lasting but that didn't necessarily at that stage mean invading afghanistan that meant trying to get al-qaeda so had the taliban handed over on bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders, then I think there wouldn't have been a war. But I just think that was extremely unlikely that would ever happen. Mm. And so your suggestion came after you left government in 2008. Yeah, I didn't realize that... at the time. I wish I had. So it came after. What I learned from those 10 years negotiating in Ireland was you do need to have an inclusive agreement. You know, we tried before in Northern Ireland three times with the Sunningdale Agreement in 73, the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 85, and the um, Downing Street Declaration in 93, each time we excluded Sinn Féin uh, and each time it failed. And it was only when we had an inclusive process, the Good Friday Agreement, we managed to get to a lasting peace. And I think that finally dawned on me at the end of those 10 years. And that's why I said when I left government that we should aim for these sort of inclusive negotiations. And of course, I mean, the response from the Foreign Office was to slam the suggestion as
0: inconceivable. Do you, this is something that sort of comes across in your book. That there's a bit of a pattern that governments talk to terrorists very late in the
1: day yes it's very depressing that they try everything else first and only when everything else has failed uh do they actually in the end negotiate the usual thing that people try is a surge just as we had a surge under obama mm-hmm. uh, in afghanistan actually in el salvador you can go back to that conflict there was a last surge by the government to try and defeat the terrorists and when that failed they uh, they began to talk so there's that pattern that we don't seem to ever remember what we've learned from previous conflicts. In fact, you could take it right back to um, to Lloyd George, that Lloyd George finally learned he needed to negotiate with the IRA rather than trying to kill them, as he'd said he would do in 1919. So he negotiated the treaty in 22. And those same civil servants who'd worked on the Irish question and the negotiations uh, with the IRA that were then sent to Palestine. And if you look at the files uh, of the colonial office at the time, they were all writing to each other on their notes. Do you think we should learn the lessons we learned with Michael Collins? And they say, no, no, no. Let's just absolutely um, uh, suppress the a- Arab revolt. And they did the opposite of what they'd learned to do just a few years before. And there must be a political
0: reason for that. I mean, it must be that making these, having these conversations is so politically co- costly that people simply don't want to do it when they have the levers of power at their
1: disposal. I think that's right. I think it's very hard for governments to explain to people why they're doing something like this. You know, it's um, it's basically political cowardice in the end to, to actually be a leader and stand up when there's been a terrorist outrage and say, you know, we really need to talk to these people, not just to uh, deal with them as a security issue. It, it, I appreciate it. It's very, very difficult. But I was very struck um, talking to uh, the father of a, a small boy who was blown up by an IRA bomb in Warrington. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he said that... Uh, if when his son was dying in his arms off that bomb, uh, he'd been told the British government was at that very moment negotiating the IRA, he'd have been horrified. Right. But if someone had told him six months later that the British government was negotiating the IRA, he'd have been delighted, because then he'd have known his son had not died in vain. There was a process that was going to end the violence. And that was exactly the case, because as his son Tim lay dying in his arms, actually um, Major was corresponding uh, with the IRA, with Martin McGuinness. He contemplated at the time cutting off uh, that correspondence because of uh, the horror of what happened in Warrington, but he decided he should go ahead, and I'm glad he did because that's what made it all possible. That's what allowed you, when you came into government in '97, to take on the um, the talks. Yes, you, you, people forget the peace talks had collapsed, that uh, John Major had not brought the Sinn Féin into the negotiations. He, they felt he'd sort of messed them around, kept them permanently in the waiting room. And they'd gone back to violence by blowing up Canary Wharf. So it wasn't exactly a happy peace process we inherited. But if John Major hadn't taken those first steps for which he got no political credit, I think it would have been difficult for us to build on them. Do you find now, we were just talking about you're going around the world and
0: talking in multiple countries and governments, do you find more of a hearing now of the idea of talking to these difficult groups? Or is it the same, really? It hasn't changed.
1: It's very selective. You know, people seem to, I mean, I remember the Spanish government, for example, back in um, in the 1990s when the first talks first started with the FARC in Colombia. They, uh, they welcomed a FARC delegation to uh, Madrid and talked to them and said how important it was to engage with terrorists. The FARC actually um, collapsed the talks and went back to war uh, not long after that. But at the same time, they wouldn't talk to ETA, terrorists in their own country. And that sort of distinction that people draw between different uh, groups I find quite um, quite difficult to, 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 to stomach, really. I think people fail to see that if you say it's okay to talk to, I don't know, Boko Haram in Nigeria, why mm-hmm. is it not okay to try and talk to ISIS in, in Syria? I mean, I think we have to try and learn from what we've experienced before with these terrorist groups. I know all, terrorist groups are always different. We've had four waves. If you go back to the anarchists and the nihilists of the 19th century, the liberation so-called terrorists, um, of uh, of colonialism and then the left terrorists of the um, 70s and 80s and then now this new religious wave we all say they're completely different and we can learn nothing from what we did before with such groups but actually we can if we really think about it and it is politically difficult and i do understand that having been in government myself for a long time but i do wish that people would at least look back and try and learn and have some uh, wisdom uh, when they try and deal with such groups
0: That's the difficulty, isn't it? Because you have
1: the philosophy
0: of it and then you have the politics of it, what is possible, what's conceivable, what's politically manageable. And so I wanted us to sort of think about that and try to pass the difference between them. But I wanted to talk about the war on terror as a way to look at those questions. And I wanted to start somewhere else. I wanted to start with a a PBS interview you gave in May, where you talked about the the period after 9-11, you said that there was an opportunity to build a much closer relationship with Russia, you said, this is almost inconceivable today. You, you described how on the day of September 11th, you were just saying it was hard to get hold of George W. Bush, that, that Putin called up Tony Blair and said, what can we do, this is a quote, what can we do, how should we pull together on this issue? What can we do in Russia to help? And Blair went to Moscow, they talk, he talked to Putin, and you, were, you said, had we played our cards differently, maybe we, meaning the West, could have actually done something much more positive to bring the world together in a common attitude. That the, the interviewer then sort of moved on, but I wondered what we could have done specifically.
1: Well, I think what we failed to do and failed to understand was the need to show respect uh, to Russia. You know, when Putin was first elected as president, he really was trying very hard to reach out to the West. Tony Blair was the first um, Western prime minister to go. Uh, to Russia. In fact, he went during the election campaign for presidency and met with Putin in St. Petersburg and we visited where he was born and went to the Peterhof and so on. And at that stage, uh, Putin was very keen to build a new relationship with the West. Uh, And that continued for, for some time after that. But I think he felt that we didn't invite him to the top table. You know, things like NATO, he was kept on the outside. Had we made more of an effort, had we actually? included the Russians more rather than seeing them still as the enemy. Maybe we could have stopped them becoming the enemy again. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I feel was a missed opportunity that could have succeeded. And then gradually Putin drifted further apart in Iraq. He felt he'd been cheated by, uh, by Bush and it got more and more distance. And then we kept on trying to reboot our relationship with Putin and it never worked. And now I think it's too late given how far he's sunk into the sort of autocracy of what is modern Russia. But it was an opportunity at the time, and I think history could have been different if we'd made more of an effort. It's the usual problem that you don't at the time make the investments you need to make because you can't see what it's going to be like in the future. You think the opportunity will always be there. Mm. Uh, But actually, one should realize that sometimes there's a window of opportunity and that closes uh, and you should make the most of it while it's there. Did you argue for that in government? We did, the British government at the time, actually, under Tony Blair, did argue that we should make more of an effort with, um, with Putin's with Russia. Uh, and we got some fee- some um, support for that from the Americans, but not much. For them, it just wasn't a priority. You know, Bush senior had tried, I remember, because I was working at the time on the German unification negotiations, the 2 plus 4 negotiations. Bush and Baker did try to think consciously about how can we include Russia? How can we make Russia under Gorbachev not feel that it's threatened, that it can be part of the international community? But again, once they left, Bill Clinton had other priorities. He wasn't really focused on that. So again, that was a bit of a missed opportunity then. And I think we missed that opportunity again later. But I don't, I can't claim that I had great wisdom at the time. This is all with the basis of retrospective views rather than at the time.
0: There was something very similar happened with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. I think Blair was the first Western leader to meet him um, in the early 2000s after the sort of opening happened. Was that, I don't know if you were involved in that, but do you think there was an opening there to bring in Assad from the cult?
1: We thought there was. We thought that uh, Assad was going to be a reformer, unlike his father. We knew that he was very focused on economic reform in particular, and we thought there was something to build on. But when we went to Damascus uh, after 9-11 as part of that trip you were describing, where we went to uh, Germany, to France, to New York, to Moscow, to Islamabad, we also went to Damascus. And I remember the visit very well. Um, uh, um, Saad so drove Tony around, drove him into the, uh, in the souk, and we he had very, very long discussions that threw everyone else out of the room, just had discussions by himself with Tony, and even in the car. Uh, he talked to Tony, and he, uh, when he was being driven, rather than driving himself, he shut the window to the driver and talked about his desire reform. So we thought there was a, a hope. But in the press conference, he then humiliated Tony Blair by taking a very strong line on uh, anti-Israeli terrorism and uh, uh, and left him in a, I remember, sitting there in the press conference with a sinking heart and feeling that maybe there was nothing here we could work with. So I don't know if there was an opportunity there. Perhaps there was. Again, perhaps we missed it, but we did try.
0: Mm. There's been, I mean, in the years since, there's been so much fighting, you know, in the Middle East and far beyond the Middle East and Yemen and Somalia and West Africa and so on and so on. And and in a way, you can trace a lot of that back to to 9-11. So I wonder, now that we're 20 years on from the the war on terror, if you still think that there is an optimism that can pull these strands together and, and bring about some sort of peace? Or do you think that the opportunities have bifurcated too much
1: now? Well, i wouldn't do what i do if i wasn't um permanently optimistic uh indeed in the northern ireland talks i appointed myself the permanent optimist even when everyone else was even tony giving up giving up hope on um, on, on making progress mm-hmm. and i think in this case too i mean i think a lot of this relates to the arab spring that i think we were massively too optimistic about the arab spring at the beginning and we're massively too pessimistic about it now when even tunisia is going down Uh, towards dictatorship, which was the one shining light where we thought there was still hope. I understand why people are pessimistic, but I do think it is hard to believe that people right across the Middle East are going to tolerate this situation forever. I do believe at some stage they showed in the Arab Spring that they would not tolerate it permanently, and I think that will be back again. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I do think we should try and uh, keep that light burning that the Arab Spring showed us, and we should keep trying to talk to groups that would actually get us to a, a lasting peace.
0: Do you think, I, I'm always intrigued by it when I hear people who've been in government talk about the Arab Spring, because sometimes I feel like they talk about it as if it's something that is happening far away and that they have no levers of power over it. But there are things that you could do.
1: Yes, um, well, we'd, uh, we'd more or less left government um, when, when it once it started. So I, I don't take personal blame. No, no. I, I, I think, think sort that's... of more, yeah, in a more sort of Britain as a country could do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, I, I, I agree. I think we, we did watch it in a rather fatalistic way, as if we were observers mm. uh, rather than participants. Uh, and even in the case of Egypt, we could have done more had we, we chosen to do so. But Egypt, equally, I, I think, sorry, Egypt. Yeah, Egypt, I, 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 I agree, but I, but I, I think, again, having been in government for a long time, I can understand why people. Uh, perhaps after what had happened in Iraq and elsewhere, felt that actually less intervention was better and we should stand back and we shouldn't um, uh, mess things up. We'd be better to be observers. I think that was a mistake. I think it is true that we uh, overreached in terms of intervention, but intervention goes up and down. You know, we, we intervene too little in places like Rwanda, in my view, too little in places like Syria, and then we intervene too much in places like Iraq and possibly even in Afghanistan. And we need to get the balance right. We need a sort of Goldilocks strategy where it's not too hot and not too cold but just the right temperature. A lot of it is, of course, the politics of it. I mean, you talk about 2011,
0: David Cameron's in power then, and perhaps the consequences of Iraq and so on, but maybe they felt that this is not the right time to get involved in things beyond our border. Let's try to fix what's happening within the country. So it does go up and down, depending on who's in power and what's happening in the world economy
1: and all of those things. Yes, although I think the main thing is you can see a cycle. If you go right back to Vietnam, people who were scarred by Vietnam did not want to intervene in Rwanda, did not want to intervene in Somalia, and even in uh, in Bosnia, uh, people like Sandy Berger um, uh, and Colin Powell actually were, were very reluctant to um, to see intervention happening. That they, they felt that it was um, uh, that they'd both been burned before. And then when people started intervening again, as in Kosovo, when Bill Clinton intervened in Kosovo with ground troops, uh, that then led to the escalation up to Iraq and. Uh, then we went back the other way with libya with half intervention so we go through i think it's more of a cycle than just the the political change of course the political change in in britain was because um uh, ed miliband wouldn't support cameron in terms of doing anything in syria and then that led to obama having a chance to back down on on taking action mm. it's sort of a it's sort of a political generation a certain generation learns the lessons the next generation forgets about them they try again that sort of thing well, they overlearn the lessons, as I say. They learned the lesson from Vietnam, you should never intervene, and that was clearly the wrong lesson. And then you learned the lesson from Iraq, you should never intervene, and that was the wrong lesson. Or, or that you should intervene from the air only and not from land, as in Libya, and that was a mistake. So what I would say is that I'm really quite keen on getting to a Goldilocks strategy, whereas instead of going through the endless cycle, we do learn what sort of intervention works. And it doesn't have to be military intervention. There are other sort of ways of intervening in these conflicts that could have a better impact. I want to talk to you about uh, countering violent extremism. We
0: we published an article by Lydia Wilson in the magazine about the CVE industry. And she touches on something that I think goes a long way towards explaining why governments continue to respond to terrorists the way they do. So this is a quote from her article. Uh, violent extremism is special in its own right, another civil servant explained, because the public think it is. Governments have to be seen to be doing something in the face of terror attacks. So I wonder if if you're in government and you know, you've been reading, talking to terrorists, and you think, oh, this Jonathan Powell guy is very convincing, but you're still in this difficult position because you have to go
1: out and sell those negotiations to the public. Yes, well, that's that's obviously right. Um, and if you look back at successful peace processes, there are really two common features to all successful peace processes. One is something the, the um, uh, academics call a perceived mutually hurting stalemate which is more than a stalemate, it's where both sides are actually hurting and where they want to uh, end the conflict and it, they can't just let it go on. So for example, uh, Israel having built the wall and stopped suicide bombing does not feel under pressure to, to make peace, so there isn't a mutually hurting stalemate there. In Northern Ireland there was, we, you know, we could contain the IRA forever, but we couldn't stop the violence and we couldn't defeat them by purely mm-hmm. military and intelligence means. And the IRA began to realise, Adams and McGuinness began to realise by the 80s that they could go on fighting forever and people could go on being killed, but they weren't going to get the Brits out by violence alone. And so we had a mutually hurting stalemate and that worked. The second feature is leadership. You know, if you think about South Africa, you certainly wouldn't have got to peace without Nelson Mandela. But actually, you would probably wouldn't have got to peace either without F.W. de Klerk. So it's the combination nice, of the two, nice. having people take risks on both sides. And again, we had that in Northern Ireland. Adams and McGuinness were prepared to take risks. David Trimble was prepared to take risks, and even Ian Paisley, mm-hmm. in the end. Paisley. Yeah, so I think it's that you need to have that kind of leadership uh, if you're going to get. It's not an easy thing to do politically. You have to be prepared to go and tell people that although you've been demonising these people, although those people have done terrible things, although you've been uh, persecuting them uh, with uh, militarily and by intelligence means. Uh, actually, in the end, you're going to have to negotiate and you're going to have to make some concessions to that's stop the, the problem Yeah, that's the hard part, Jonathan, because, of course, in a democracy, in order to
0: motivate people, you have to tell them these people are terrible, they've done atrocities, we need to punish them, all of that stuff. Otherwise, you don't get the political backing in order to do these things. But then you need to go back to the public and say to them, OK, now we need to talk to these people. And that is
1: incredibly difficult. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. difficult. That, yeah. But people do, I mean, people may be wiser than sometimes the politicians think. I remember, I don't know why, but I was with Paddy um, Mayhew, the Northern Ireland secretary, when he had to go to Parliament to explain when the Observer had the leaked versions of their entire correspondence between John Major and uh, Martin McGuinness of the IRA, the IRA had leaked it. And uh, he was sure he's going to be called on to resign because they denied repeatedly in Parliament they would ever engage with the IRA. In fact, when he got to Parliament, what he did had been welcomed by both sides, because people understood that despite the 30 years of murder and bloodshed, that actually, to end it, you do have to talk. So I think sometimes we underestimate, politicians underestimate the public. I wonder if you think it's easy then
0: to explain that decision to the families of the victims. Because you said, for example, you said, we'll talk to Al-Qaeda, you would have talked to ISIS, I guess.
1: Yes. I I mean, I'm in favor of talking to all of these groups, engaging with them. It's not always right to have a negotiation, but I'm certainly in favor of talking to them because in the case of the IRA, we had a secret channel to them right back to 1972, first uh, uh, engineered by the Secret Intelligence Service. And it was Mm. crucially useful, a series of of, uh, different moments. In 1974, a ceasefire was negotiated with the IRA through that. In 1980, the end to the first hunger strike was negotiated through that. And crucially, it allowed the correspondence with John Major. So I'm always in favour of engaging with these groups, and then as I say, if you can find the right moment for a negotiation when you have the right leadership, people prepared to take a risk, and you have that mutually hurting stalemate, then there is a chance to get to peace. But then how do you go, let's talk about Al-Qaeda, how do you go to the families
0: of the victims of 7-7 and say to them, we're now going to, as a government, we're now going to go and talk to the people who did this uh, to your son, your daughter, brother, husband?
1: Well, as I say, that's exactly what had to happen with the victims of the IRA. Um, uh, And the the description I gave of the Warrington bomb is that kind of attitude by victims. Some victims uh, want revenge for their loved ones, but most want to know what happened and to know that the conflict's going to end. I worked on the Columbia peace process for eight years with President Santos, and I was actually there at the signing of the peace agreement alongside two women whose uh, children had been killed by the FARC. And they had round their necks halters with pictures of their sons just before they were killed, and they were very tearful and very disturbed, as you might imagine. Yeah. And I sat there when the president of the FARC, the leader of the FARC, made a speech in which he apologised for the first time for uh, what the FARC had done. And these women jumped to their feet, um, uh, yelling in in, in, uh, in in happiness, actually, that finally they got an apology for what had happened. And I think you can have that cathartic moment when people understand that it is possible to avoid there being any more victims in the future. It's incredibly Mm -hmm. difficult for people who suffered in that way, I know. And even in in Northern Ireland, we haven't resolved this problem now. We have a whole controversy about what's going to happen to the historic inquiries into both soldiers and policemen, but also uh, killings by terrorists. But unless you find a way of escaping that past and moving on, it's very hard to settle uh, the conflict for good. But wouldn't the terrorist groups simply see it as weakness? Wouldn't,
0: if you had spoken to Al Qaeda post 2001, they would have said, well, that worked, let's do it again? Or you talk to the Taliban or ISIS or the IRA, any of these groups that have attacked civilians, would they not have said, hey, we used violence against civilians and we dragged the other side
1: to the negotiating table? It's a good strategy. Um, No, I don't think they would because. (laughs) quite often they don't want to negotiate they're, they're quite often the ones who don't want to talk even when the government starts approaching them, they find it quite hard to persuade them to talk especially when they think they're winning and there is a bit of a sort of myopia about this winning because you can have a surge on the government side uh, but the people on the other side as the Taliban did can think they can outweigh you so this notion that you can somehow get the upper hand through military force doesn't always work and I don't think that's a key to whether a negotiation is possible or not and nor do I think actually terrorists ever win in the end you know the ira's constitution said that they could not give up their weapons until they had uh secured a united ireland in fact we never discussed the united ireland in the negotiations with them at all we talked about other things like north south bodies about power sharing and so on mm-hmm. so actually people don't win by taking up weapons but you do have to find a way of ending the conflict and that does mean in the end you have to talk to the men with guns but you do, at some point, perhaps in the beginning, you have to push them to the
0: negotiating table. And now that means sometimes you do have to use force.
1: You certainly wouldn't be able to do it without force. The, the point, My point really is, that what we tend to do is we go in as if playing golf with one club and we just have um, the uh, military force or police action. Right. And when that doesn't work, we then usually, uh, certainly in the case of... Um, the modern religious terrorist groups, we then go for uh, counter extremism, we try and work on ideology, uh, and that doesn't work either. That doesn't mean to say oh, you should give both of those up, what I'm saying is you should have another um, uh, arrow for your bow, if you like, to mix my mm-hmm. metaphors, you should actually mm-hmm. also try talking. It's the combination of, the, of those things, it's the pressure down, because otherwise they won't talk, it, it's being prepared to offer them a political way out so they don't just fight to the last person. That's the combination that has worked historically with such groups. It won't always work, but it seems to me the best one to try. So this is, leads us to something that you talk about in the book, um, the, what you call the Rajapaksa
0: model, which is uh, the, um, named after the former Sri Lankan president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who brought the civil war to an end. He brought it to an end using no-holds-barred violent repression, and it worked.
1: They did, I did, and they uh, propagated it around the world before they lost office for the first time as, um, as a model that could be used elsewhere. But I don't think it is a model for three reasons, really. Mm-hmm. But firstly, because um, Prabhakar, the leader of the Tamil Tigers, had a reputation as a military genius, but as one of the Norwegian negotiators commented at the time, he turned out to be a military fool because he tried to write a, fight a conventional military campaign against a conventional army, uh, and he lost. Not surprisingly, had he carried on with a terrorist campaign or a guerrilla campaign in the in the woods in the jungle, he'd probably still be fighting now. Secondly, the means used by the Sri Lankan army to shell and destroy the tigers, Nandakar Lagoon is something that no Western government, no liberal government, no democratic government in the normal sense could use because so many civilians were killed, and you'll remember the UN report on that. And lastly, they failed to actually address the political, Underlying roots of this conflict, and now we have again trouble in in um, in Sri Lanka, both with the uh, Muslim community and with the Tigers and with the Tamils. So I don't think they actually solve the problem by purely military means.
0: The question but, is,
1: yeah. no, carry on. Sorry. No, I like just said the question is that, you know, if there's a political issue, you're going to have to address the political problem underlying it. You know, dictatorships can deal with these problems quite well. Stalin simply moved whole population groups off to Siberia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the trouble is, all that does is freezes the conflict, when they come back to Chechnya, wherever it might be, the conflict starts again. So in the end, you have to actually address the underlying problem, uh, or you'll constantly be dragged back into the, uh, that conflict. I, I wanted us to talk about
0: a time when actually intervention did work, and that's the Kosovo War of 1999. That was the first big test of the Blair Doctrine of Humanitarian Intervention. I wonder if at the time, I mean, you were there at the time, do you remember it being discussed as as a pivotal political moment? Like, did Blair think, okay, well, this is an opportunity to test my philosophy or was it just something that you had to deal with?
1: No, it's kind of almost the other way round that the Chicago speech was one of the few speeches I helped to write for Tony Blair was derived from the argument we were trying to make with bill clinton about why you needed to have ground troops in uh, if we were going to succeed in kosovo so um, we were dealing with this conflict we felt that what had happened in bosnia had been a mistake and taken a very long time uh, for military action in bosnia to then force the peace process you would not have had um, uh, that successful peace process in relatively successful at the time, at least in in, in, uh, in Bosnia, the Dayton process, mm-hmm. if you hadn't had the military action. It had taken Western governments an unconscionable amount of time to get, get, get to that, partly because of many of the European support for the Croat side in, in, in the conflict. But anyway, it, it did happen eventually in Bosnia, and we wanted to make sure in Kosovo we didn't have the same humanitarian suffering, that we were prepared to take military action if necessary to stop that humanitarian action, and Bill Clinton brought into that argument. And Tony Blair, before we took the action, set out the theory of it in the the Chicago speech, which I actually recently Mm reread, and which I still actually think stands the test of time quite well, the five criteria he set out in that speech um, still, I think, are probably the right decisions you need, the right questions you need to ask yourself um, if you're going to get involved in military intervention. The trouble, of course, is that different people can give different answers to those five questions. There's no real science to it. But at least mm-hmm. if you're asking questions that may produce special results than failing to ask the questions. So I think that, that, that and that then led to the R2P debate inside the UN and that nearly led to a new theory of, of uh, the right to protect. But as yeah, you were we'll, we'll, the vetoes in the Security Council. Yeah, we'll come to that. But just to go back to Kosovo. So at the time,
0: you wouldn't have tried to negotiate with I mean, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia as it was then
1: you wouldn't have negotiated with Slobodan Milosevic. There were a series of negotiations with, with Milosevic, um, including Marta uh, uh who, um, who, and actually a number of, Jimmy Carter, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, all tried reaching out to Milosevic, but he wasn't interested in, uh, in a negotiation, because I think he probably realized that if he failed in Kosovo, as he eventually did, he himself would fall. And that, of course, was what happened. When uh, the uh, Serbs collapsed in Kosovo, as they did quite thick, quickly actually as soon as uh, Western military ground troops were introduced, even before real fighting had happened, then he himself was uh, kicked out of parliament and ended up in front of the court in The Hague. So um, I don't think Vlasic was ever actually in the business of negotiating on Kosovo in the way that he had on Bosnia.
0: But you you would have tried before the use of military force?
1: I would have done the things in combination. I, I do think that the giving people a political way out if they want to take it, combined with the military pressure, is what seems to have worked in the few successes there are around the world uh, making peace. Uh, so that seems to be the right combination. In a way, the military option is to close off their own possible military
0: victory to make the political path the only path available to them.
1: Exactly. If people with the IRA realise they can't win militarily and if the pressure on them is pretty hard, uh, they're never going to surrender, but they may well negotiate. Mm-hmm. So that brings us inevitably to Iraq.
0: I guess the political consensus now is that Iraq destroyed this idea of humanitarian intervention. Do you agree with that analysis of it?
1: Uh, No, not as such. What I think happened was, as I say, the cycle, uh, just as Vietnam ended one cycle and then we had to start all over again. um, I think it uh, certainly, the lesson that many people took from it was what I would regard as the wrong lesson, that you should either never intervene, as in the case of Syria, or you should intervene only from the air, as the case of Libya. And I think both were mistakes. Um, you need There's certainly a lot of lessons to learn from Iraq about how you shouldn't do it, but I think we should learn the right lessons and not the wrong lessons, which is what I think we did. Are there political lessons to learn from the run-up to Iraq? Yes, I think we should have asked ourselves those five questions more. Uh, I think the key difference between it and Afghanistan were that, in the case of Afghanistan, people seem to forget it now, we had... A pretty universal consensus about what needed to be done uh, in terms of intervention in afghanistan including russia including even pakistan uh that was something that we did not have in the case of iran it, iraq it was a very very narrow uh, base of support and that was not enough uh, actually as tony blair said well uh, perspicaciously in one of his notes to bush was revealed in the chilcox inquiry is that uh, if we take this on without a wide coalition of support then we're going to own the mistakes if it goes wrong mm. Well, I mean, I think it's probably reasonable to say that Blair did have to own the the mistakes
0: and um, it certainly destroyed his reputation among parts of the left. I I want to talk a bit about your time with Tony Blair. You were the only Blair advisor to last 10 years throughout his time in government. Um, And you, you developed this reputation for being very loyal to Blair. The Daily Mail once described you as a diehard stayer, which I imagine
1: you probably see as a compliment. I doubt they meant it as a compliment. (laughs) <laughs> if it's a Daily Mail, they certainly didn't mean it as a compliment. Actually, <laughs> I guess so. Lasted longer than that. I got. I became Tennis Chief of Staff when he became leader of the Labour Party. So I lasted 13 and a half years, uh, including the 10 years in Downing Street. So uh, I think I have the world record for being a Chief of Staff in a democracy. Because normally people burn out before then.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you, and do you still feel loyal to Blair?
1: Oh, yes. No, I think Blair was a very considerable uh, leader, a very considerable prime minister and probably the last prime minister of this country that had a real impact on the world stage. I can't think of one of the ones since then who's who's had that. So yes, I do. I think he was a, a, had a rather extraordinary talent. I mean, like all leaders, there are failings. But, and of course, i got many more of those myself. But the yes, I do. I, when I wrote a book called, called The New Machiavelli, which is really a sort of account of our time in government, um, I did say that, I mean, it may be another... Um, 20 or 30 years before Tony Blair's reputation is rehabilitated. But I think it will be. I think when people look back and they look beyond just Iraq, when they look at Kosovo, when they look at Northern Ireland, when they look at what happened to the education system, I think actually he will be seen as one of the great prime ministers. Do you think it is possible for people to look beyond Iraq? In time, it will be, yes. I mean, I was a historian by training and... uh, we have this endless debate about whether George III was the worst uh, king in the, uh, in the British history, and whether Lord North was the worst prime minister because they lost the American colonies. Yeah. And the uh, revisionism always circles round and round, saying yes they were, no they weren't, and the latest revisionism no that is no they weren't. So yes, you you he will certainly. I, I'm actually also quite interested in the. Um, I was wonderful. It's not worth opening a market in the post-office um, phase of both presidents and prime ministers because it's interesting to see what happens to people's reputations. Jimmy Carter when he left office, was extremely unpopular and has become perhaps the most popular ex-president, whereas Reagan was a very popular president, at least to start with, and became a very unpopular ex-president. And so people's reputations go up and down once they leave office. And history, I think, in my view, will be very kind to Tony Blair. Do you think that your personal reputation has suffered by, I mean, continuing this loyalty to him
0: over so many years, especially now that he's become a bit of a politically toxic figure among parts of the left?
1: I don't really mind because I think I, my father I have a reputation I think my reputation should be staked on being consistent and sticking to what I think are the right things rather than tailoring to whatever the wind might be at a at a particular moment um, I, I think Tony Blair made mistakes I made mis- plenty of mistakes in government too uh, and the question is can you learn from those and can you help other people by paying what you learned both by the things you did wrong and the things that you did right and that's what I try and do in my work around the world at the moment do you think Iraq was a mistake? I certainly think we made a huge amount of huge number of mistakes. I think the important thing is to categorize what those were and what those weren't. But I don't think anyone could be very happy with the way that Iraq turned out. No. Do you ever
0: feel guilty over Iraq?
1: Do you lose sleep over it? Um, yeah. I, yes, I do feel guilty of the suffering that came out of Iraq and actually out of Afghanistan too. Now that we've pulled out of that, I do feel those things. But I feel more importantly that I'd like people to learn the right lessons, and that I don't think the right lesson from Iraq is that we're just never going to intervene again. It seems to be the lesson that some people have have drawn from that. And I so, think, sorry, Jonathan, some people would say that the lesson was we shouldn't have intervened
0: then, not that we should never intervene subsequently. But that the intervention you don't always have.
1: The, you don't have the luxury of that choice. That's one of the mistakes that I think, for example, the Chilcot inquiry made. To think that the UK was in some position to act unilaterally on Iraq and say, well, no, we're not going to go in actually until the summer when the heats are 50 degrees. is just not realistic when you're de- <laughs> the intervention is the intervention of American forces who've been sitting there already for six months by that stage. And the commanders felt they couldn't leave them sitting any longer. They either had to go in or withdraw them. And that was the choice that they decided they had to make. So we did not have the uh, luxury of being able to decide when the intervention would happen. We tried to influence it. We did influence Bush to go down the UN route. Uh, we did not manage to secure a second resolution. And we did delay the intervention, but we didn't delay it as long as we'd have liked because we just couldn't do that. Would you personally have, have negotiated longer with Saddam Hussein? If it were you? Yeah, and, and the basis of... Uh, Looking back at it, and I'm thinking, I'm in the process of writing a book at the moment on foreign policy and intervention, so I'm looking back at my diaries from that time, at the Chilcot Inquiry, at various other primary sources, and I think I would have, again, with retrospect, I didn't think this at the time, but in retrospect, I think I would have uh, tried to combine the pressure and way out more effectively. We know now, because of the interrogation of Saddam, that actually, he deliberately wanted there to be um, confusion about whether or not he had weapons of mass destruction. He was worried that Iran and his enemies would depose him if they knew he didn't have such weapons. And he gambled that he could get away with um, being unclear, um, sort of denying that he did, but at the same time hinting that he, that he might do. And that's why his, his own military approached him as the war started, saying we need chemical protection suits if we're going to be using this stuff and him being very ambivalent in his answers. So we know now that he gambled and he lost, but we lost too because we looked like idiots when there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, it's, so it's I think it had one combined the uh, threat of force and offering a political way out more effectively, we might have avoided a war uh, and might have achieved the objective we wanted to achieve without, which would have been the, the, the fall of Saddam Hussein without the loss of life. It's more than just looking stupid, Jonathan. I mean, a million Iraqis dead, the destruction of a country.
0: The, no, no. The I was talking.
1: Spe- no, I was talking specifically about the weapons of mass destruction that made us look foolish. I wasn't talking about mm. the suffering from the war. Absolutely, I agree. I mean, as I said, that's the thing that gives me sleepless nights. It's the the way we disappointed those who hoped there was going to be a new the Iraqis who hoped there was going to be a new life for Iraq, and the way we weren't able to control the anarchy that sprung up after that, that led to essentially the Sunni Shia civil war that goes on today. I wondered if in a personal sense, because you specialize
0: in conflict resolution, I wondered if you look back at it as a personal failure, because you were not able to de-conflict the most pivotal British war of this century.
1: Well, I didn't necessarily see myself as a sort of peacemaker at the time, I saw myself as a chief of staff, uh, also engaged in Northern Ireland, so I'm not sure I had that image of myself, and there are limits to what you can do, but there are reasons why I've spent the last... uh, 12 years and intend to spend as long as I can keep going, working on this, and I think in a way it is, because I was involved in a series of wars, uh, at least some of which ended pretty unhappily. I wonder what you think about the, the consequences of the Iraq war on the
0: subsequent politics, particularly on a, a generation that grew up uh, with the anti-war protest as a formative part of their political education. I mean, That is definitely something you must have seen over the past 15 years, that there's a generational divide in the reputation of Blair, that those people who remember the 1990s and remember the the sort of stagnation of the dying days of the major government, they might look at the early part of the Blair years and say, well, a lot of good things were done. But there's a whole generation that grew up after that, who only remember, you know, the invasion and Abu Ghraib and Blackwater and all of that. And they think, well, Blair got away with it. They don't remember the earlier part.
1: Um, I'm not sure I agree about the generational divide, because I find that quite a lot of old people, even older than me, uh, dislike Tony Blair, particularly if they're conservative, and use Iraq as, a, as a, the stick to beat him. What tends to happen is people look at the last thing that happened in government rather than your, peer, your period in government as a whole. They look at the thing that's in front of them and say so Iraq dominates uh, what they think of Tony Blair, whatever generation they come from. And I think, as I say, that change, that will change over time, that people will have a more a, a, a longer term perspective of what he did and didn't do uh, in government. And so I don't know that I think that's a generational thing. I think the anti-war movement pre-existed Blair, um, the, the Iraq war clearly gave it a big Philip. And yeah, I, uh, the, um, the program about Blair Brown is just coming out uh, tonight. I was just looking at one of the clips, and one of the clips is me recounting how uh, my wife and uh, oldest daughter, who was two at the time, went on the anti-war demonstration right when I was sitting in number 10, working mm-hmm. on the on the thing. So I wasn't unaware of the anti-war uh, protests. And that, that I think, is true. That, that um, strengthened the anti-war sentiments of what happened in Iraq, clearly. Uh, and that did influence what happened later. And that is, I think, because people, as I say, have drawn the wrong lessons. Do you think Blair will ever face consequences for the decision to go to war in Iraq? Well, he has faced consequences as you yourself said in terms of his political reputation if you mean legal or other no i don't think so I think it's very unlikely
0: and do you think that um that britain might ever pay reparations to iraq
1: um i i've I no idea what the legal basis of that would be and if you're going to start doing that you've got an awful long way to go back and we'd be paying reparations for the first second and third afghan wars as well as the more recent one so i don't know i think um uh, I don't even think that's the most important issue. The important issue, I think, is to see what one can do to remedy the situation in Iraq now, and even more the situation in Syria, uh, and learn the lessons so we don't keep repeating the same things. As I say on Talking to Terrorists, I think we never seem to learn the lessons. We just keep repeating the same mistakes. And I fear we may do the same on intervention. And I hope, as a point of writing a new book on this subject, is to try and find a way of getting people to have this Goldilocks approach where you don't overreach, you don't always go for military intervention, but you don't stop intervening. I
0: wanted to end by asking you some personal questions. Um, since negotiating in Northern Ireland, you built your career around dialogue with terrorist groups. And you've written this book and you founded Intermediate. I wonder at what point you thought that this is my calling. Was it with the Good Friday Agreement or was it being in government after 9-11? What was the point at which you thought, OK, this is something I can really make a contribution on?
1: Um, that's an interesting question I think it was it didn't sort of um, it wasn't like a blinding flash of light because I have to say that the Northern Ireland negotiations were quite painful <laughs> I was trying to be chief of staff in Downing Street but having to fly across the Irish Sea and meet Adams and McGuinness in safe houses in Derry and Belfast and Dublin mm. uh, and then meet the Unionists and try and make progress on this was quite a painful thing to do quite often involved overnight negotiations being sort of um, subject to a good cop, bad cop approach by, by Adams and McGuinness. It wasn't exactly a, a bundle of pleasure doing it. But when I look back on government, it was the thing I was proudest of and the thing I thought had made most difference. And something I actually had turned out to be quite good at, slightly to my surprise. When I left government, the only people who offered me jobs were banks. So I went and worked for a bank for a, a yeah, year. Yeah. You a From Morgan Stanley. Yeah. Uh, that actually turned out to be 2008, the year all the banks died and Morgan Stanley nearly did too, Uh, so I didn't really learn much about banking, and I quit after a year, and then started doing this, actually I carried on doing the negotiations even while I was at the bank, working in the Basque country, Um, so I think it was when I left government that I realised, what did I miss about government, I'd done in government, and it was this negotiating, I thought I had something to share from what I'd done in Northern Ireland, and so I think it was a revelation that happened to me as I left government, basically. You've been in the
0: room, and you're talking about being in the room uh, with the IRA, but you've been in the room with some very dangerous people, terrorists and dictators and war criminals. I imagine it must be quite hard to sit in front of people who've been responsible for you know, hundreds, thousands of
1: deaths. Well, what is that actually like when you look at those sorts of people? Sometimes people who've really been in the front line of fighting, um, you can see in their eyes, if they killed a lot of people. Like meeting a bunch of mid mid um, mid-level Boko haram people for example you see people who've really been ground down by blood on their side and on the other side leaders is usually rather different because they've usually graduated from fighting to uh being fairly safe themselves and presiding over these things the thing i think is that it's important to try and build a relationship of trust, but not necessarily to become their friends. I remember talking to Yaa Hashvelt, who was the Israeli negotiator in the lead-up to Oslo, and he said that he wanted to build a relationship of trust with the Palestinians, but he did not want to uh, become buddies with them. And he recounts a time when Rabin told him he could not go to a particular negotiating session he promised to go to because of an outrage committed by the PLO, but he insisted on going because he didn't want to... uh, lose that trust and i've seen people who go into the job i do that tend to fall for sort of stockholm syndrome they sort of almost fall into thinking the terrorists are cool in some way and that Mm -hmm. is a terrible mistake but it is not right to either treat them as if they were not humans the first time i met adams McGuinness i refused to shake hands with them because they'd shot my father and injured him and put my brother who worked for thatcher on a death list for eight years Tony Blair very sensibly did shake their hands and i learned from that and I do think the job is to create trust, uh, not to judge the people as if you were their maker, but to understand that they have done terrible things, but that you were trying to stop them doing that. Did you ever meet anybody that you felt particularly unnerved by? Yeah, sometimes uh, you feel slightly apprehensive uh, because you have to put your safety in the hands of the people you're talking to. There's no point in taking bodyguards with you. If you're going to do this, you have to actually rely on their hospitality and, and trust them. So sometimes you do feel a little bit nervous, thinking, "Oh my God, what have I done?" But you try to make the decisions on the basis of rationality. I mean, has there been anybody that you want to name that you, or the groups that you thought these are, these are bad people, and something might happen to me here? No, no. I mean, there have been a number of such groups. I wouldn't really want to, to name them. It's just a, a matter of trying to. You know, I'm no, I don't have any courage. I'm a coward, basically. But you, uh, so I'm quite careful about what I do. But you mm-hmm. just want to uh, think carefully about what you do. And then you have to just trust that the people you're dealing with are going, to, it's not in their interest to kill you or kidnap you, because otherwise they're going to fail in their negotiation. That's not to say, of course, that mediators, you know, Terry Waite, um, uh, Count Bernadotte have been killed in the pursuit of trying to make peace. So it does happen. Uh, but usually if you're careful, you'll be all right. Even after all this time talking to these groups, do you still feel optimistic about the ability to make peace? Yes, I do. I feel <laughs> I've had a couple of pretty bad setbacks in Afghanistan where we've been working for the last three years and Myanmar where we've been working for nine years. So I have had a couple of blows to my confidence, I have to say. But I still believe it's possible. And in in um, Venezuela, for example, negotiations are now happening uh, even in Nigeria, progress is possible. So, yes, I guess I always remain optimistic. As I say, during the peace process in Northern Ireland, sometimes Tony would lose hope. I remember him doing a town hall TV show with a bunch of young uh, unionists and Republicans. In, I think it was about 2003. And I remember him coming out of the room in Downing Street where he would recorded it and saying, Jonathan, it's hopeless. The next generation is even worse than the last one. Uh, and I was the one who said, no, no, we've got to keep going. We've got to keep making this work. It can work in the end. So someone has to be optimistic. Someone has to believe it can be done. Because people forget that these things don't happen suddenly. They, you know Northern Ireland, as I said, there were three failed processes before we succeeded. And Seamus Mallon, the SDLP Catholic leader at the time, called it, uh, it uh, sun, Sunningdale for slow learners. And it is, that is what you have to think about. In Colombia, there were three failed processes before Santos succeeded. You've got to keep trying these things and they won't always work straight away. And even Arab Israel in the end will be solved by negotiation. There is no other way that it's going to get solved. Uh, And I don't know when that will be, but I strongly believe it will happen at some stage. And that's why we should keep trying. Do you still feel optimistic about human nature? I kind of feel realistic. As I say, I wrote a book about Machiavelli and people misunderstand Machiavelli. The point that Machiavelli was making is not that all people are evil. He's saying that human nature uh is something that you have to be realistic about and you have to work with and you have to understand people's interests and work with those interests it's the same thing that shakespeare was saying really and that's what i believe i don't think people are good or people are bad there are good people there are bad people but in the end people have interests and what you want to try and do is work with those interests and show to them that making peace stopping the killing is actually in their interests as well as everyone else's jonathan powell thank you very much
0: thank you Jonathan's latest book is The New Machiavelli, How to Wield Power in the Modern World. You can find Intermediate at inter-mediate.org. And of course, you can find more essays and reportage on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.